Samir Balaji. Um, you all know him. And what we're going to talk about today is um, what can we know about the future? And what can we know about the biggest transformations happening now? Uh, you know that I like to write my books about um, uh, the extent to which we can guess future trends and where we're going. For a while, I was very interested in China uh, and whether China can, can actually shape our collective future. There are two um, possibilities that I haven't written about, and I'd like to discuss them with Balaji. One, obviously, is COVID. Uh, it's very easy to think about the present moment and uh, imagine that COVID is going to be the historical event that we talk about for the next few decades and that historians are going to talk about 20, 30, 50 years from now. And uh, we didn't quite see it coming, but Balaji was one of the first that, that talked about it back in January. I remember his tweets. And then if we have time, we're going to talk about uh, crypto as well, which in a way is almost like the reverse side of, of this coin because it's a, it's a human event, uh, un, unpredictable, uh, new, radically new, but with enormous impact in just one decade. But let's start uh, with, with COVID. Uh, you know, Balaji, that there's people who think we're going to get the vaccine uh, already in December in the US, January in Europe, uh, things are going to go back to normal. And maybe a few years from now, uh, we won't even remember what happened. And I'm struck reading things about 1917, 1918, 1919. I just finished a book about Italian fascism. Spanish flu doesn't show up at all. Uh, so the question is, could this happen again? That in the end, we have this sense that COVID is a momentous event and it might turn out not to be. I don't believe that, but what's your view on this? Well, uh, you know, there's this uh, concept of, you know, just the flu, like COVID is just the flu. And there's a corollary to it, which is just the Spanish flu. <laughs> okay. Um, and uh, and I, I think the distinction is the economy of 1917, 1918, and the society of that time was just a completely different world. You know, it was um, it was something where it was still transitioning from a farming and as you know, as a farming and manufacturing world and supply chains, you know, even though it was the first great age of globalization, supply chains were, um, you know, less complex, many of them may have been broken by the first world war. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, the consumer economy wasn't what it was. And, you know, as, as an analogy, I tweeted about this, but general electromagnetic pulses. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. So for in the 1800s, there was this, con this thing called the Carrington event, okay, which um, an astronomer documented. And, uh, you know, it happened in 18, you know, 59. Okay. This geomagnetic storm hit the US and uh, it was something that caused telegraphs and, you know, the few electronic or electromagnetic device at the time to malfunction. I, I think like you know, telegraphs caught fire or something like that. Like, you know, this is, this was the kind of thing that, that happened. Right. And, um, so that at the time though, the Carrington event was mostly something where that economy was, was basically immune to it. Right. Because it didn't really have huge numbers of electromagnetic devices today, a Carrington event would wreak enormous havoc because every electromagnetic device would be interfered with. So in, at least that's a thought experiment that shows that an economy that we would think of as behind us, you know, in many respects, 
because you know there there are a lot fewer things in the economy of 1859 or 1857 um, was more robust to a shock of the kind um, imposed by the Carrington event, right? And in the same way, I think it is plausible to at least hypothesize that the economy of 1917, 1918 was more robust than, um, you know, the, the economy of today with respect to, you know, a, the influenza pandemic. Okay. Um, and uh, the, so, so that's like at least one thought. And why would I say it's, it might be more robust? Well, you know, more people were autarkic, you know, they could take care of themselves. Supply chains weren't as long. Uh, you didn't have the, you know, retail economy to the same extent. The number of restaurants was, um, you know, depending on how you look, certainly less than one-tenth, possibly one one-hundredth, mm -hmm. if you look at like employment. Just, it's just a completely different world. It's like a hundred years ago. That's one aspect. The second aspect is the Spanish flu is heavily censored. People didn't even know it was going on often. You know, it was something where... Uh, yes, folks were kind of locked in their rooms, but they couldn't tweet. They couldn't talk to each other. You know, it was something that there's powerful centralized censorship. And, you know, that actually can work in the sense that what is not written down and what is not documented when people can't share their experiences, um, you know, it, it took a while for folks to be able to put together that something actually bad happened, you know, mm -hmm. um, a little bit like in the Soviet Union, when you'd hear rumors of something, but you had no idea what the scale of it was. Um, you know, you just, you know, it was all heavily censored. So it's kind of a very important second aspect. Whereas COVID is one of the most documented things in the world, whether that's, uh, whether what's being written down is true. Um, it's certainly, there's certainly a lot that's being written down and tweeted and whatever about it. Okay. Third, you know, you mentioned, oh, well, the whole thing just kind of go away. I mean, look, it's possible. Uh, I don't, I don't believe that the uh, public sector in the West can get anything done, but I do think the private sector can. And so, you know, had the, if the vaccine, if all of the distribution happens via, you know, Pfizer or Moderna or, you know, some combination of, you know, pharma companies, those companies can still execute in some ways. I don't think they execute as well as, as tech companies, but, but they, they can, you know. Um, so look, it's possible. Um, on their hand, you know, when you have like a vaccine, it's being tested on like sub hundred people or thereabouts, I think in both the studies, there's a lot you know, when you talk about scaling that up to tens of millions, hundreds of millions, maybe billions of people, um, that's not trivial. Just from a manufacturing standpoint, it's not trivial. I know they've said they've made like 20 million doses or what have you. Uh, okay, but you know, it's, it's, just, it's just not easy ever, ever scaling anything like that up. Maybe it goes off without a hitch, okay? But um, there's some issues. One is people may not take it. In the West, there's all kinds of anti-vax sentiment, right? Uh, number two is they may take it and you know, a side effect that is relatively rare um, gets reported and then more people don't take it. They're like, oh, oh my God, right? I mean, you know, vaccines are drugs, right? They're a subset of drugs. And it's kind of interesting to me that people are so suspicious of drugs and so trusting of vaccines, you know, like, you know, you, you can argue that that's inconsistent. Um, one argument is, oh, you should be more suspicious of, of vaccines. The second argument is, hey, we need to liberalize drugs. You know, we need to allow people to take drugs. Maybe you need to, if you're, if you're so trusting of Pfizer and Moderna and so on now, and you think they're the good guys, why are they the good guys in other situations, right? Um, and, and so my point is you can push on that in both ways. And, you know, look, at not that I think drug companies are the good guys or the bad guys. I think that, you know, certainly vaccines work in the abstract. 
it is possible that any particular vaccine has logistical issues or whatever scaling up. And so it is possible that the whole thing goes away, but um, you know, I, I think it's gonna take some time at a minimum for the vaccine to get deployed, number one. The alternative is that, so that's the, that's a, uh, you know, the uh, pessimistic, that's a positive scenario, right? That vaccine is deployed, logistics are worked out, um, you know, the logistics of Amazon.com are worked out, right? For the most part, people don't think about them, but, you know, packages move, right? So it's possible it gets worked out. You know, pri private, the private sector has done some absolutely ins insane, amazing things. Um, the flip side of it, the other possible scenario, I'm certainly not saying this 100%, uh, I'm not even saying it's 50%, but I do think it's a possibility, is no one was prepared for, you know, 10 years of Iraq, and no one's prepared for 10 years of COVID. Right. Um, and by that, what I mean is, that you know, uh, many people in the world may not get a vaccine for a long time. Um, it may just kind of churn around the world. It may be something that people in the West don't take a vaccine to, and then it becomes like a Western malaria, where you know there's pockets and reservoirs of it, and that means it's got the chance to keep mutating. You know, it's got it just kind of keeps ricocheting around in this environment, and you know, every once in a while it might mutate. Now it's not. We we don't think it's as hypermutable as the flu. The flu is certain you know molecular um, aspects to it, like how its genome is set up that make it, uh, particularly prone to finding new pathogenic variants. Um, but, uh, but we don't know, you know, like it, it, it may be the case. So in that case, you know, this vaccine may, I mean, especially if the vaccine is taken partially, then there's, there's a strong incentive. It's, it's like partial compliance with an antibacterial. And what you result in often when that happens is selection for, because um, you still have a large population, right? If you have partial compliance with an antibacterial uh, or an antimicrobial of some kind, and um, the population is, is halved, but it's not taken all the way down to 1% or 0.01% and then killed, then there's, there's more shots on goal, more attempts to find that mutated version that is now immune to that antimicrobial, right? That's how microbial resistance is, is, you know, comes about. So if you have like a partial compliance, you know, with, with a vaccination regime, that's a great recipe to develop, you know, vaccine resistant, you know, kinds of, uh, of viruses potentially, right? Again, depends on the molecular mechanism, depends on all this type of stuff. These are just possibilities. I'm not, I, it, is, it is part of my job to look at positive and negative downside cases. These are things where I'm a little cautious of just declaring mission accomplished. Yeah. Um, okay, let me pause there. No, that, I mean that's that that's a very good point that I haven't seen enough in the in the media. Um, you know, if parts of the world don't have access to the vaccine for some reason, um, you could actually have mutations that then migrate back to the to the developed world, and the process could be much more painful and longer than people think. It's it's not static; it's dynamic. Uh, but let me turn to psychological, political, social consequences. So, an exercise I like to make is think ahead thirty. 30 years and um, try to imagine how historians are going to write about this. Um, um, is COVID the beginning of something? And in that case, the beginning of what? Uh, if you're going to write a book on COVID uh, starting in, 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 in 2019, but projecting it towards the future, what is its larger historical significance? And I have, you know, I'm starting my own book on COVID and I have a number of hypotheses that I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about and testing. Um, one obvious one, is that COVID is going to mark the beginning of an era of technological acceleration. 
for reasons that you've talked about, so I don't have to, to explain very much, but um, maybe you've seen Tyler Cohen yesterday and today suggesting uh, with, with some excitement that perhaps the great stagnation has come to an end. And even in his tweets and in his arguments, uh, uh, he hasn't written a lot about it yet. Um, the suggestion is that COVID is uh, making a contribution to this um, because at least in biomedicine, but also other areas, digital and so on, it has, um, it has contributed to a certain acceleration, but more importantly, psychologically, it has broken the resistance to technological innovation because people now have to think, well, on the one hand, we have the dangers of technology, but on the other hand, we have actually the dangers of the natural world that isn't entirely tame as opposed to what we thought. So that's certainly one theory that one could have, uh, that without COVID would have um, the continuation of the great stagnation, but with COVID, that could change rather dramatically and rather quickly. What do you think about that? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that, so several things. First is, you can sort of think of the true impact of something as, you know, the number of people that it impacts multiplied by the impact on each person, right? So, you know, COVID is comparable to, let's say, smartphones or Google or something like that in terms of impacting billions of people and impacting them for, you know, hours or days or weeks or months, uh, you know, per person, if that makes any sense. You know, it's like a, it's a, it's a huge base of how many people it impacts and it impacts their life, not in a transient way, but in a significant way over time. You know, like a smartphone is like that. They use it every single day for years, right? Billions of people. And COVID is like that. It, it changes the lives of people, you know, for many, many people for a long time. Um, you know, even 9-11 wasn't really like that, right? Like, you know, 9-11 wasn't really like that. The financial crisis was more like that, but it, it was, it, it, you know, it didn't affect as many people uh, and, and not for as long a time in the same way, right? Um, because it was, you know, the Western financial crisis was not the same as how it manifested in China. And so, and even though it was a global financial crisis. So COVID being a biological thing, is a little bit like technology in that it's got a quasi-uniform impact over the world. Not, not totally uniform, but less non-uniform than in different, you know, two different political systems. Now, of course, Asia has done a better job with COVID than not, so political systems certainly do matter. To your point, yeah, I think I'd, I'd phrase it maybe slightly differently, a little more compactly as 2020 is the year the internet began. And by that, what I mean is I have this concept. So, you know, that particular one-liner is due to a friend of mine, but I have a concept I talk about, which I call the primary and the mirror, right? So in the 90s, you know, when the New York Times first went online, it was like, you know, the New York Times now on the web. And it just had a few articles up there, right? And it was just kind of a hello world, just an example to show that it could be done. And so the primary was very much still the physical paper, but the mirror was the, you know, the, the few articles that were online. And over time, gradually, you sort of shifted more and more and more content online until now it's fairly said that the website is the primary and the, the paper, the physical paper is just a printout. It's just a mirror at any one time. And it is an incomplete mirror because there's articles that are data science articles. There's articles that are, you know, embedded tweets. You know, you can argue that in many ways, the New York Times today is a collection of tweets, which is a separate topic, but an important one, right? And um, those are natively digital objects, 
where the physical paper is, you know, you're printing out a tweet. It kind of defeats the point, right? Um, and so that's something where it shifted, the primary and the mirror have shifted. And so I think that is what COVID's, you know, really one of its major legacies will be is, you know, in the 90s, people talked about the digital divide, right? Oh, you know, so people aren't going to get online and so on and so forth. Now with billions of people, and look, it's reasonable concern, whatever, but now the billions of people have smartphones, you know, and pretty much everybody in the world will get a smartphone. Just, you know, the, everything is lined up for that. The profit motive is there for it. The demand is there. It's, it's going to happen, right? Um, so pretty much everybody in the world will get a smartphone eventually. And, uh, and I think the majority of the world has one now at this point. And so now what has happened is something I call the physical divide, where the digital world is primary and the physical world is just the mirror. And, you know, people will say, oh, yeah, you know, well, biology people still value in-person meetings. They still value in-person X, in-person Y. I'm like, yes, they value it. But that's why they're going to be at a premium, you know, because digital is cheap and it's fast and it's programmable and it's instant. Digital becomes the default for lots of areas. Let me give you an example of something that would have been considered crazy. Well, so obviously meetings, that's a big one, right? Meetings, it was considered until very recently, until this year, it was considered rude for an important meeting to be done via Zoom, for an important meeting to be done remote, right? You could do, you know, quick ones and, and so on and so forth. You could do podcasts or stuff like that. Casual stuff, fine. But for a big deal, for an M&A, for something like that, it was considered rude, inconsiderate to not go and fly, right? Yeah. Then with COVID, it was flipped around. It was considered rude or inconsiderate, potentially life-endangering to request a, 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 you know, a, 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 an in-person. And that just shift where the cultural equilibrium is. I don't think it snaps all the way back, number one. I think there's going to be at least pockets that prefer the Zoom life to the alternative because you just saved so much time. You needed everybody to agree at the same time. So it was like a bunch of backlinks pointed into one thing of some cultural you know, uh, uh, convention that now all on point and point to the opposite cultural convention, right? Okay, so, um, so that's, that's one thing that, that happened. But the, the second thing that happened is once you kind of move to that and you have, okay, we're all doing Zooms, we're all doing digital, really what you're saying is you're doing digital first. And Zoom itself, as, as great as it is, you know, it is just a scanner. Okay, what I mean by that is you've got paper, then you've got a scanner that takes it offline and puts it online. And then you've got like a digital first environment, right? So VR is like a digital first environment. And if you use VR, you'll find that it's actually in many ways less tiring than Zoom to use because you don't have to like, you know, focus on someone's face for hours and hours and hours or like 50 people's faces. Like Zoom is in this sort of netherworld where it is, um, you get some of the in-person, but not all of it. And so your brain is just not adapted for that. For example, when you have 30 people on Zoom, you know, like, like your brain isn't adapted for having 30 people on one XY coordinate, like standing on top of each other right? There's supposed to be space. You're supposed to have cues as when someone is talking versus someone else. You don't have any of those things really on Zoom. You don't have body language, any of those things. In VR, you can somewhat re, you know, recapitulate some of these things. So I think that what, what happens is we flipped over a bunch of things to being digital first. And, um, you know, even things like weddings, for example, you know, years ago, I joked, you know, you know, we should Skype into, you know, this wedding. Um, it was a joke, right? Now it's actually happening. 
And people are like, oh, that's so sad. That's so bad or whatever. But I actually think what's going to happen, and I'll probably start in subcultures, is people will realize that you can do extremely fancy weddings in VR, right? You can basically make them very fancy with all kinds of special effects and fireworks and, you know, elaborate this and that in a way that you just couldn't in the real world. And they'll be cheaper, right? Uh, and you'll be able to film them from 5,000 different angles, right? If you, if you haven't paid attention to Twitch, right, that's what the kids are doing, right? They're all online all the time, watching other people play video games and so on, right? So the, you know, the virtual worlds just are more interesting than real life. More things are popping and blowing up and fizzing and whatever than, you know, the real world. That's why people look at screens is they stimulate more than the real world. It just, you know, screens just move faster. Boom, you can fight with 300 people on Twitter in 20 minutes. <laughs> you can't do that in real life, right? Um, so I think that, you know, for example, VR weddings, VR graduations, VR events of different kinds, at first it'll be seen as weird and then eventually it'll be seen as cheaper and more customizable. Now I think still people will still do the physical stuff, but that'll be at a premium, mm -hmm. right? Hence the physical divide, you know, basically what's happened over the last 70 years has become incredibly cheap to pack, you know, millions of transistors onto a chip, but it's suddenly become very expensive to put a hundred people into a room. And I think that, you know, the, quarantine stuff. And so, I mean, again, it's possible that it all goes away, right? If it does go away with vaccines, I think people will, um, you know, by the mid 2020s or something like that, it might, I think it'll take a little bit longer than just a few months, but we'll see. If it does just all go away and clears away like a cloud, well, I think a lot of people, digital nomadism will then explode. But because what, what you're describing is a world where it's almost the reverse of what we had before, because before there was a certain class divide in which, you know, the upper classes had access to um, uh, technology, computers and, um, uh, and, and, and sophisticated technology. And it's the working class that had to deal with the real world. Now, what you're describing potentially in the future is exactly the reverse. Yep, uh, exactly the reverse. You have to be a billionaire to have access to, you know, we see we saw that in, in, in previous weeks on Instagram that, you know, a number of celebrities um, bragging about the ability that they have to go to a private island, uh, whereas everyone else has to has to use the internet. Um, but that takes me to there's the a famous. There's yeah. a famous photo, by the way, which, um, I mean, I'm actually much more sympathetic to Zuck than many other people, but there's a famous photo of Zuck walking through an Oculus uh, auditorium where he's the only one without the mask and everybody else has Oculus headset on. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think, I don't think you necessarily have to be a quote billionaire to experience the physical world. Um, but I do think that it's going to be something where physical is expensive and digital is default. Right. Digital yeah. default, physical divide. Okay. Um, you know, I'm not entirely convinced that, that this is going to work. Um, in the sense that we still have to figure out what happens to the physical world. And, you know, there's different possibilities either, you know, it's, it, it's, it's taken over by a certain billionaire class. Uh, and there's been, you know, some you know, dystopian, slightly frightening images where you're actually in your apartment uh, using uh, robotics, uh, you know, uh, allows you to actually be working in a supermarket, but you know, that's the worst of, of all possible worlds. You're still working in a supermarket, but you're closing your small apartment. There's, there's something about this that I find, you know, it has to be decided 
Or then, you know, the opposite scenario is one where the physical world is left to a kind of underclass of drug addicts, uh, homeless people, uh, and no one cares about it anymore. It's real the tragedy of the commons because everyone is living their virtual lives in, um, in virtual reality. So there's a problem here. I think you'd agree with me. We still have to figure out what to do about the physical world if, if this divide becomes uh, as clear as you describe it. Well, I mean, I think in Asia, so there's an interesting aspect of this. Because Asia has managed to get corona under control, it's funny because, you know, first order is, oh, the U.S. did a terrible job. Second order, as you pointed out repeatedly, well, Europe has is comparably bad, and it seems like Germany is doing better than others or what have you. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll see how the whole thing progresses, but it does look like they're doing better. They're the real outlier. And then third order is, well, the West is doing a bad job and Asia is doing a better job, right? And, you know, insofar as you want to put on a continuum with like the West and then Germany and then Asia, there, there is a greater degree of, you know, let's call it history of having an ordered state, you know, for better or worse, right? But, but basically, people are more likely to just kind of fall in line. Um, and, uh, you know, whereas in, in the West, whether it's, you know, I have my civil rights or, you know, I'm a, I'm a free person, you know, there's both left and right traditions of just not listening to the law, you know, and, and civil disobedience for all the good that is, I mean, there's, there's a lot of good that's come out of that tradition of freedom, but in a situation like this, it's something where people either are skeptical or they don't care, or they give lip service to it and then do whatever they want and, and, and so on and so forth. Right. So um, this is, this is a collective action problem. Now, one of the things I think that leads to is a genuine, divergence potentially in world cultures where uh, Asia takes us really seriously and physical meetups are possible in Asia, you know, and it's possible again, the private sector may come out with the save. I, I definitely, um, I, I, I can't wait the probabilities there because, you know, we just see scientific studies and um, you just have to see how it's going to be deployed at scale. I know there's always a, a slip between a cup and the lip, you know, when it, when it comes to scale, but um, it is possible, for example, that because China can do things physically, because Asia can do things physically, they do. Because the West can't, or because it's more expensive, they're sort of forced to innovate on interesting digital native things and civilizations like diverge even more. Mm -hmm. You know, this is related to your whole virtual thesis, you know, of, of things going virtual first. But, you know, just as an example, uh, Bitcoin is much more complicated algorithmically than, you know, PayPal, because PayPal at first order is just a permission database where you debit one account and credit another. Of course, there's all kinds of checks. It's more complicated than that, but that's what it is to first order, right? Bitcoin is way more complicated than that. But what it does is it allows you to have a database where there's no single person who's a root user. Every, every user is a root user, basically. Um, which is remarkable. You don't, you know, not everybody can read every entry of the Twitter database or the Facebook database, but anybody can read any entry of the Bitcoin database. I've got a post on this. Yeah. So the concept being, why do I make that point? Once you go digital first, and Bitcoin's a great example of digital first, it's not simply, you know, there's, there's paper money, then there's the scanner, which is taking offline and putting it online, which is PayPal and Stripe and everything else that's kind of running on, you know, the paper systems underpinning it. And there's truly digital first, which is Bitcoin, you know, and cryptocurrency. Yeah. And when you go truly digital first, 
it's more complicated, but once you can solve those problems, you unlock truly new things. And so that may be, you know, a, a silver lining in all of this is we unlock truly new things because we're sort of forced to innovate in that area. I think, you know, let's, let's turn to, um, to crypto a little bit. Um, um, 10 minutes on that. That's your, your second big topic. <laughs> now, I think, you know, I, I, I agree with you. What's, what's remarkable about Bitcoin is that um, it's, it's, it's not a copy of, of the physical world. It's uh, uh, an idea that is born in the digital world and actually has to wait for the right technology to be available. Uh, but obviously, it's not like uh, digitizing a book. Uh, it's it's exactly the, the reverse process. Um, you start an idea that is native to digital. Let me ask you this question, which I don't see asked enough. How in the end do you interpret historically um, Bitcoin? Um, what I find uh, really extraordinary about Bitcoin is, you know, it's almost the exact opposite of what I've been talking about with COVID. COVID is a, a natural force that takes over the world, impacts everyone at the same time. Bitcoin is... Uh, uh, an idea that one individual or, you know, we don't know if it was a collective, uh, has a, a one specific moment in time, uh, a paper nine pages long or 10 pages long, sent to a message board, many message boards around. Uh, and how does the, the, the sort of a, um, the dissonance between the original fact and the impact, the fact, it's like nothing else that we can find at least in our lifetimes. Uh, just a, a very small act with an extraordinary impact in a very short amount of time. It kind of vindicates a, a theory that we thought had been refuted of the great man or great woman of history, where one single act by a single individual is capable of changing history in such a dramatic way. Uh, is that how you interpret it? Do you think, you know, without, without Satoshi's paper, we would have exactly the same? Or is it like a moment where one individual act uh, changes history in a completely unpredictable and, and new direction? How do you read think it's, Bitcoin as a historical phenomenon? I think it's absolutely the, the power of one person. Um, and the, the reason I think that is, you know, if you're in technology, I mean, founders really matter. Founders really matter. You run lots and lots of microeconomic experiments where if you don't believe in the power of an individual, I mean, so first of all, before we talk about the very macro, okay, um, in microeconomics, you can in theory at least run experiments, you know, and, you know, it's, it's not as clean as an inclined plane. You know, the feedback cycle is, is months or years, sometimes a decade rather than um, you know, the, the, the seconds it takes to roll a ball down a plane or run a physics experiment, right? So the feedback loop is, is, is uh, slower, but it's not non-existent. And, uh, and you can set up different com companies and see controls. And um, just from you know, like making money in the space or building companies in the space, you find that founders matter. Um, and the way you find that is they're not, uh, they're not fungible. You know, um, a company without its founder, for example, often cannot radically reform itself. You know, there's rare, rare, rare examples where you essentially get somebody who's like a second founder. Um, Satya Nadella is like that at Microsoft, you know. Um, John Chambers is like that at Cisco. But most of the time, you know, what, uh, and, and John Chambers didn't have to reform the company, he took over from, you know, the two founders there and basically was like a founding CEO level person. But 
Um, most of the time, if you have to do like a radical shift, for example, Steve Jobs coming back to Apple and doing something totally radical, you, you needed that both the technical ability or managerial ability in his case and the moral legitimacy to do that, to make that radical shift. Um, people don't understand this part outside the industry as much as they should, but you know, Zuckerberg in 2012, Facebook was a desktop app and he had to switch it to mobile. And today we're like, oh yeah, of course, switch to mobile or whatever. But that's like converting an army to a Navy, okay? It's not easy to do. It's a total platform shift. All your assumptions break in terms of how much bandwidth, you know, the phone has versus the desktop and the real estate on the screen and what do you put where and 10 teams that all had pride of place. Now you have to have only three teams that get a button above the top. It's a massive organizational endeavor to do that. And then you have to monetize it where you don't have as much real estate on mobile as you do on desktop. And somehow he was able to make that transition and drive mobile first thinking across the entire company. And then Facebook made more money on mobile than they did on desktop in a couple of years, right? So that's that's a power of a founder is they have the moral legitimacy to do those things. And you can see their idiosyncrasies. I mean, Zuck and Dorsey and Bezos are still very much in control of their companies and their idiosyncrasies are baked into the products. If you work at those companies, if you work with people who work at those companies, um, it really is something where the founder does put their stamp on things. Now, of course, look, you know, it's entropic, right? In the sense that, um, you know, the, the, the founder is like a point of order and then everything around like is supposed to kind of align into that. But um, it is certainly true that you can't always, you know, the larger the thing gets, people just sort of do their own things or not as aligned. Um, but I think generally speaking, we do see that founders matter. And just to oh. summarize, A, well, you sought them out. Well, let, me, let me stop you there and ask you a yeah. point of clarification. You, you, you do think that Satoshi is on, on a different level from, from a Bill Gates or a Zuck or, or a Bezos, right? Uh, we're talking about- I think he's on a different level. I, different. I mean, he's, he's like, what are, what's the way of putting it? Uh, obviously, he's done something different in the sense he's you know an open source- um, he developed something open source and what he did was fundamentally a, um, you know, it started with an ac an algorithmic innovation, right? Mm -hmm. You know, in terms of uh, Nakamoto consensus. But in another sense, he's very similar because nobody would have cared about Bitcoin had he not written the first version, built the community, right? Evangelized it. I mean, he built BitcoinTalk.org, right? So he built the forum. He recruited developers. He uh, argued its case on Bitcoin Talk calmly. Um, he didn't just put out an academic paper, but he built a working version. And he maintained that for two years when it was very unpopular to do so. Bitcoin wasn't at $20,000. I don't think he was even at $1 during much of when he maintained it, right? So in many, many ways, he's actually very similar to the professors who we fund that become founders. You know, certainly very, uh, a very successful version of it, but he has the same DNA for sure. And he thought about economics from the beginning, right? He thought about the venture upside, you know, he's, he's very conscious of setting up Bitcoin in such a way that there was an incentive for people to buy in. And he thought about economics and economic alignment, which every great founder does, you know? So, so he was similar to like a professor who becomes a founder, like a particularly exceptional version thereof. But, I, but I do think of him as similar to a startup founder for those reasons. Um, no, I asked the question because I think he's on a on a higher level. To be honest, uh, you know, when I think about Facebook or when I think about Amazon, uh, on the one hand, 
these are not uh, essentially individual projects. They pursue some tendencies that are already there. Um, they rely on, 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 on venture capital. Um, and on the other hand, uh, I'm still quite skeptical that Facebook or Amazon are such revolutionary ideas to begin with. Uh, again, to go back to our example of you know, digitizing books, you're, um, uh, you, you're turning things that already existed into digital, maybe you disagree with this or not. And you know, Bitcoin is something that really, in my view, comes out of nowhere. Um, that couldn't have been anticipated. There's a, a, a different level of historical novelty with Bitcoin. Uh, and there's a really extraordinary, you know, as I said before, just an extraordinary uh, uh, contrast between uh, the original act and the impact, uh, which I don't think you see with um, with Amazon or Facebook uh, uh, or the other examples. So, so, all right. So let me, let me, well, first of all, do I agree with you that Satoshi is a historical figure? Yes. Do I think that he is on the same level as like a Newton or a Maxwell or something, I think in the fullness of time, absolutely. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that part, I, I very much agree with you. Um, I think that being close to it, you know, and actually being close to these large companies or what have you, um, it's, it, yes, it is true that there's human beings there. Okay. Um, but, okay. It's hard for me to, to, to phrase this in a way that doesn't like make people mad or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. But put it like this, you know, the, the, um, when you write a, when you write a job description, right. Sometimes that job could be done by a human and sometimes that job can be done by a computer. Okay. So, you know, you, you often have a trade-off, like how, how much time does it take to automate this versus doing it manually? Okay. And, um, the, the difference is something where, you know, now that we have robots and so on, you're going to have more and more people who are able to do the kind of thing Satoshi did. I, maybe not at the same level, you know, in terms of an epochal breakthrough like that. That may only happen once a century or once a millennium or something like that. Okay, I, I grant that. But the kind of thing Satoshi did where, where your one of your arguments was he did it as one person Whereas Bezos or Zuck needed an army of people, you know, all, all the folks there, right? right? But what they've done really as a really fantastic manager is they cut up the problem into subroutines like a really good programmer does, sure. right? And they had humans execute it rather than machines, but in some cases they could have had machines execute it. And as robots come online, robots will be able to execute more of those things, right? So, so a really good founder is like a programmer that chops up the problem into pieces that can be executed as subroutines. So in that sense, I actually think it's quite similar. Now, of course, the difference is humans aren't machines. Humans don't like it when you like totally change the task that they're doing. Humans are more creative than machines. I grant all of that absolutely true. And in fact, that's actually one of the hardest things about being a programmer who becomes a founder is you go from being lead engineer to chief psychologist, okay? Because <laughs> you have to like deal with, you know, human beings and, and, and whatnot. But in general, I would not, I really, I mean, basically I don't, um, I think once an academic actually goes and starts one of these companies, you realize how hard it is. And so like very, you know, you, you talk to academics who've gone and done, uh, you know, Coursera or Udacity, you know, who, who've come out of academia and founded various companies. And they all have respect for what Bezos and Zuck and what not have done because they know how hard it is. That, anyway, TLDR is, 
I wouldn't take anything away from Bezos and Zuck. I wouldn't say that that was easy to do. I, I, I do think Satoshi is um, a world historical figure, but frankly, I mean, getting 3 billion people onto Facebook or building Amazon into what it is, it, yes, it can be summarized as, oh yeah, you just built a social network or, 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 or just a logistics thing, but it's, it's, it's at least at the level of like standard oil. Well, you know? you know, if, if the same exercise we, we've done before here, and it's kind of the theme of our conversation, if we project into the future 100 years, and you don't have to say this yourself, I'll, I'll, I'll say it. Uh, you know, I think it's more likely that we're going to have a Satoshi Museum than a Zuckerberg Museum or a Bezos Museum 100 years from now in, in, in some large world cities. But I guess, you know, we'll, we'll see. Um, uh, I, th I think of Bezos and, and Zuckerberg as essentially business figures, uh, as Carnegie's um, or, or Ford's, uh, and I think of Satoshi. Yeah, no, that's right. Well, so that's right. You're right that basically, I mean, but I mean, Carnegie or Ford or Rockefeller are, you know, still famous people today, right? Yeah. Yeah. They go, so, so, so yes. Uh, whereas you could put Satoshi more like uh, Maxwell or Newton, like, like, um, you know, like an amazing scientist, right? Because the fundamental thing they did was a scientific discovery. Right. I would agree with that. All right. Final question. Uh, and again, again, the same theme, the same topic. Uh, let's try to project um, Bitcoin crypto into into the future. 50 years. Um, what's going to be the, uh, the, the the ultimate meaning of Bitcoin? Is it a currency? Is it a new form of political power? Is it a new form of political society, a new form of human society, a new way of thinking, a new way of relating to reality? Um, the sort of the large historical horizon what is Bitcoin going to become in the end? What is it going to become in the end? Um, I think it is. Um, I think it really is like the foundation of a digital first society. Okay. In, in, you know, sort of the, um, I mean, the impact could be compared to, I know it sounds funny to put it this way, but like the Bible or the constitution, Mm -hmm. You know, something which, uh, oh, and by the way, when I say Bitcoin, it is possible that the current implementation of Bitcoin has a bug. Okay. It's always possible that that's there. Right. Sure. But I'd say the concepts underpinning Bitcoin, the concepts of cryptocurrency, the concepts of distributed ledger and so on, what they reflect is the reason I mentioned the Bible and the constitution is God state network, right? We're transitioning Leviathans, you know, in the 1800s, you know, why didn't you steal? Because people believed in God. They really believed a guy with a lightning bolt was going to smite you. By the 1900s, enough people didn't believe in God. You know, Nietzsche in the late 1800s are in, you know, God is dead, et cetera. By the 1900s, people didn't believe in God, so they believed in the state, you know? Even if you didn't believe in God, the boys in blue are going to come and get you, right? So the state will punish you. Why don't you steal? The state will punish you. Yeah. Now, by the 2000s on the internet, there is no God, and there's also no state. There's no police on the internet. And on the internet, why don't you steal? in the 2000s, why don't you steal? Because the network won't let you. Either the social network will mob you or you don't have the private key, okay? And uh, voila, you know, now you've got something where um, you, you have uh, the, the next Leviathan because the 1800s was the most powerful force, God. The 1900s was the most powerful force, ultimately the US military. The 2000s, what's the most powerful force? encryption. Right. And so Bitcoin heralds that transition of Leviathans, which will not be without uh, 
Sturm und Drang, right? There's going to be a lot of fur that's going to fly. I think actually it might be, you know, if you think about how Facebook was dismissed as a fad and then post 2016, it was the most important thing ever and shifted elections and blah, 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 right? Uh, for what's worth, by the way, I think Twitter is more important than Facebook politically, even though it gets much less attention, you know, for what it's worth. But, um, you know, that went from nobody cares, it's a joke, haha, blah, blah, to this incredibly important thing. Yeah. And I think the same thing is going to happen with cryptocurrency, where it goes from, yeah, stupid, you know, tech people to, oh my God, this is so important. It can't be allowed to be this important, et cetera. And then you're going to see some crazy things happening. But I do think there's going to be enough governments around the world that understand the benefits of cryptocurrency. So, I mean, with 200 plus, you know, ostensibly sovereign nations in the UN, some of them may decide just like they've broken ranks with the central bank digital currencies like DCEP, like what China's doing. Some of them may decide to accumulate cryptocurrency as part of their reserves along with gold. Um, I think that'll be an important moment. I know the folks have been talking to like Israel central bank about this various, you know, country central banks. Um, and you just need a few defectors like that to change, you know, the, the world order. I think it's going to be very patchwork like though, in the sense of some, you know, countries will do one thing, some countries will do another. So it'll be very patchy. Well, it's, I, th I think it's fair to say that, that Facebook was caught unprepared for all the politics that one could guess was going to come sooner or later. Uh, but I don't think they, they, they knew that or they anticipated that. And one can only wish that, that crypto uh, is, is less naive about this and has in place uh, some kind of, of, of politics and some kind of diplomacy. Because soon enough, as you say, I completely agree, it's going to become very political. Um, now, uh, reaching the end, but uh, you know, some of the things you said uh, show very well how important this is. Um, I mean, the idea that one can have an unmediated access to um, math uh, and, and reality and the objective world that one can organize a society around that unmediated access where you don't need uh, interpreters, you don't need human beings to work as interpreters. That's an idea that you find in Plato's Republic, uh, but there it's only a promise, a kind of a dream. Uh, I think it's quite possible to think about Bitcoin as in a way realizing some of the oldest aspirations of our philosophical and political tradition uh, in that sense of basing a political society directly uh, without intermediaries on something that one could call truth, uh, be it mathematical or other kinds. Uh, I think it is that important and, and probably we agree on that. So I think we're, we're almost done here. I'll, I'll let you um, add some final comments if you wish, but this was a, a fantastic conversation essentially on a kind of Balaji's philosophy of history, uh, which I don't know if you've uh, expanded before, but this was a good introduction to it. Uh, some final comments? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think that, uh, you know, COVID and crypto have something in common, which is that, uh, both of them have the impact they did because the post-war order is showing its age. You know, Western institutions are themselves like, you know, the 75-year-old person who's most susceptible to COVID. You know, they are um, they're essentially aged institutions. And, um, you know, one of my theses is very few things that predate the internet will easily survive the internet. And so whether that means a rebirth and reinvention, or that means a refounding, you know, 
it could be one of two things. It could be both, you know. Um, but I think that, um, mm -hmm. you, you know, that that's that's sort of the common thread between the two is that these institutions that have been around for now most of people's lives, 70 plus years, are, are showing their age. And um, that's why they're simply not able to keep up with the demands of the present. So you have the alternative like Bitcoin, you have something that does tremendous damage like COVID. I don't think COVID would have done the same damage in you know the 1950s for lots of different reasons. Um, I think societies were just better organized um, at least now, in other ways, they were worse organized because they were very top-down centralized control, you know. Um, but at least for a threat like COVID, they they were better suited to that. They may be less well suited to having lots of decentralized production. No, I think I think that's that's very obvious. Uh, even psychologically unprepared um, people in Europe and the United States just uh, it was not part of their mental horizon that something like this could happen. I think right. by the way, that's that that's been the great advantage of East East Asia and Southeast Asia, and I saw that because I was traveling in the region, particularly in Southeast Asia, back in February, and you could see how uh, you know an event like this was part of their realm of possibility, and in Europe and the United yeah. States, simply was not. But that shows that kind of a limitation of horizons that uh, that unfortunately we were suffering from, and perhaps still are. Well, it's funny you say that because right before the financial crisis, a few years before, Bernanke published a paper on the great moderation talking about how, hey, you know, we figured it all out. The age of huge financial shocks is over, et cetera, before kabum, kabum, right? And uh, I think, you know, Fauci, uh, I believe, um, published a paper saying, you know, the age of pandemics is over um, in like 2012 or something like that. Mm. Um, and um, I forgot when he... Uh, I, I want to find the actual um, paper, but right. basically it was something like, oh, um, the, the really, really big deals are, are over, you know, um, hold on, let's see. Um, I, 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 I don't remember the exact year, but I'm pretty sure that, uh, there was whether it's Fauci or someone else. I I want to find something. I'll send you the citation afterwards, which yep. said, you know, just like the Great Moderation, pandemics are over, and of course they're not. I'll, um, I'll, add, I'll add the link to to the conversation. Um, okay. Later, uh, Baj, it was great. Uh, hope we can do this again some other time. But this was a really focused discussion uh, on history and and where we're going. Uh, thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. Good one. Bye.